Section 39 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 The Fertilization of Flowers, Part 2. There appears, therefore, to be a proportion of plants in which the existence of stamens and pistil in the same flower, the normal condition of matters in ordinary plants, is meant to and does secure the fertilization of the ovules by the flower's own pollen. Why, then, seeing that the presence of correlated stamens and pistils in each flower appears to be a common condition of plant life, do we assume that not self-fertilization, but the opposite process, cross-fertilization, is the rule of nature? The reply to this query involves more than one important consideration. Let us briefly endeavor to find a convenient starting point in the familiar flower which Peter Bell despised and which to minds of utilitarian type amongst ourselves is but a primrose still and nothing more if we study the structure of the primroses we may gather in a bed of these flowers it will be found that the blossoms obtained from one set of plants will vary in certain respects from the flowers of other and neighboring plants there is no difference in appearance or in outward aspect between the primroses because the differences referred to affect chiefly the position of the stamens and the length of the style or neck of the pistil in each variety but we may readily discover that selecting any one primrose plant all the flowers of that plant will be either long styled or short styled and will not exhibit a mixture of the two varieties the two kinds of flowers says mr darwin speaking of the long and short styled cowslips which form a closely allied species to the primroses are never found on the same individual plant and he also remarks that he has never met with any transitional states between the two forms growing in a state of nature. The cowslips and other allies of the primrose exhibit a like disposition of parts. Thus, when we slit one of the primroses longwise, we see that the stamens are placed high up on the petals or near the top of the corolla, and the style is comparatively short. In the other variety, the stamens are placed far down within the tube of the corolla, whilst the style is so long that the stigma appears to block up the entrance to that tube and reaches to the top of the petals. Thus we speak of short-styled and long-styled flowers in primrose and in all other plants in which these conditions occur, whilst popularly the short-styled forms are called thrum-eyed and the long-styled ones pin-eyed. Such a disposition of stamens and pistil also occurs in pulmonaria officinalis, in linum perenni and in other plants which are hence called dimorphic that is having two forms of flower and in some plants for example oxalis and the spiked loosestrife or lithrum salicaria three varieties of flowers are known and these latter are named trimorphic in consequence returning to our primroses we find that the pollen grains of the two forms of flower differ in size those of the long-styled primroses are smaller than those of the short-styled flowers. Mr. Darwin remarks of the pollen grains of the latter flowers that, quote, before they were soaked in water, they were decidedly broader, in proportion to their length, than those from the long-styled. After being soaked, they were relatively to those from the long-styled as 100 to 71 in diameter and more transparent, unquote. Mr. Darwin also compared these two forms of flowers in other respects. He found that the seeds of the short-styled flowers, quote, weighed exactly twice as much as those from an equal number of long-styled plants, unquote. 
the short style being the more productive of the two forms. As final facts concerning the differences between the two varieties, it may be noted that the stigma or head of the pistil in the long-styled form is more distinctly globular and roughened on its surface than that of the short-styled primroses, whilst the stigma in each form stands nearly, but not quite, on a level with the anthers of the opposite variety. What can be affirmed as a matter of observation to be the meaning and purpose of this diverse arrangement of stamens and pistils in these plants? Meaning it must have, and that one which is closely bound up with the history of the species. So, indeed, it was found when, through Mr. Darwin's researches, contributed to the Linnean Society's transactions in 1862, it was clearly demonstrated that the arrangement in question had reference to the cross-fertilization of the primroses and of all other plants in which a like diversity of structure was found. Mr. Darwin then pointed out that the structure of the primrose was eminently adapted to favor the visits of insects as aids in procuring the fertilization of the long-styled flowers by the pollen of the short-styled flowers, and vice versa. Such an interchange of pollen is accomplished in a manner readily understood. Suppose that an insect, such as a humble bee, first visits a long-styled flower, drawn to the primrose in search of the nectar which this flower, the cowslip, and other members of the genus secrete in quantity. The proboscis of the bee will be thrust into the tube of the corolla, and in the act of nectar gathering it will unconsciously dust its proboscis with pollen nearer the tip of that organ than at the base. Suppose next that the bee, with its pollen-laden proboscis, flies to another primrose plant of the short-styled variety. The proboscis inserted therein as before will come into contact with the low-lying stigma, and upon this surface will be left the pollen, which was gathered from the stamens of the long-styled flower. Thus, interchange the first is accomplished. But when visiting the short-styled flower, the bee's proboscis, coming in contact with the stamens, placed at the top of the flower, is dusted near the base with short-styled pollen. Hence, the next visit paid to a long-styled flower results in the placing of pollen from the short-styled flower upon the stigma of the long-styled primrose. The stigma of the latter is placed, as we have seen, at the top of the flower, and is thus well calculated to meet the base of the bee's tongue, which has been dusted with short-styled pollen. Interchange the second is thus accomplished, and the cross-fertilization of the primrose race becomes a matter of well-nigh absolute certainty. As indicated in the annexed figure from Mr. Darwin, the legitimate fertilization is that which occurs when pollen from the long-styled form is placed on the short-styled pistil and vice versa. The illegitimate fertilization is self-fertilization in either case, namely through the pollen of either flower being placed upon its own stigma. Mr. Darwin's own words, applying to his observations on the cowslip, primula virus, may be read with interest as applying likewise to the similar arrangement in the allied primrose. After noting that humblebees, and likewise moths, visit these flowers, Mr. Darwin says, quote, It follows from the position of the organs, anthers, and stigmas, that if the proboscis of a dead humblebee, or a thick bristle or rough needle, be pushed down the corolla, first of one form and then of the other, as an insect would do in visiting the two forms growing mingled together, pollen from the long stamen form adheres round the base of the object and is left with certainty on the stigma of the long-styled form, 
whilst pollen from the short stamens of the long-styled form adheres a little way above the extremity of the object, and some is generally left on the stigma of the other form. Unquote. Mr. Darwin is also careful to note that self-fertilization must occasionally occur in these flowers through quote, an insect in withdrawing its proboscis from the corolla of the long-styled form, unquote, leaving pollen from the flower on that flower's own stigma. Such a result will occur most frequently in the case of the short-styled flowers, as may be experimentally demonstrated, and small insects such as those belonging to the genus Thrips, wandering aimlessly about within the flower, may likewise be the means of inducing self-fertilization. But, as if in anticipation of such defeat of her clear intent and purpose, we find a very significant observation brought to light in the fact that even if a flower's own pollen be placed on its pistil, cross-fertilization may yet take place, inasmuch as pollen from a different form of flower seems to be capable of obliterating the effect of the flower's own pollen. Even, as Mr. Darwin, quote, when this has been placed on the stigma a considerable time before, unquote. An experiment of very crucial nature supplies an instance of the prepotent effect of foreign pollen over a flower's own. On the stigma of a long-styled cowslip, Mr. Darwin placed plenty of pollen from the same plant. After a lapse of 24 hours, he added pollen from a short-styled dark red polyanthus, which is a variety of cowslip. Quote, from the flowers thus treated, 30 seedlings were raised, and all these, without exception, bore reddish flowers so that the effect of the pollen from the same form, though placed on the stigmas 24 hours previously, was quite destroyed by that of pollen from a plant belonging to the other form." Unquote. The philosophy of Primrose existence can hardly be said to be in any sense comprehended through the mere knowledge of the contrivances which exist in that flower for the prevention of self-fertilization and the favoring of the opposite process. On the contrary, the philosophy which carries with it the understanding and appreciation of the system and order of nature is only discernible when, firstly, we step forth more fully into the light of things, and when, secondly, we discover, from such wider views of flower life, the advantages gained and the ends served by the processes under consideration. Hence, for the present, we may turn with profit from the polity of a primrose to discuss some analogous features in that wider realm of flowers to which the primrose and its kind may fitly introduce us. After such survey we may, with additional likelihood of arriving at just conclusions respecting the philosophy of plant life, return to the primula and its lessons once more. It has been already remarked that self-fertilization is the exception and cross-fertilization the rule of plant nature. At any rate, the cases where cross-fertilization is obviously the process which, by manifold contrivances, nature seeks to further and effect, increase in number year by year. Although self-fertilization does occur, and is a possibility even with normally cross-fertilized plants, yet the whole drift of modern botanical teaching tends towards the recognition of the mutual interchange of pollen betwixt related flowers as the normal way of plant reproduction nor do the comparative results to be hereafter detailed of cross and self-fertilization in the least degree vitiate these conclusions. On the other hand, every fact of botany dealing with ascertained results of the one method of fertilization, as compared with those obtained by the other, testifies to the enormous gain, possible and actual, to the plant creation through the effects of cross-fertilization. 
The presence of so many different methods whereby this end is secured constitutes an eloquent fact in favor of the supposition that the normal way of plant life undoubtedly lies in the direction of pollen interchange as a necessity for energetic development and for the full fruition of the races and tribes of plants that people Earth's firmament. Within the limits of the present chapter, it would be impossible to enter into the discussion of those peculiarities of insect structure which have been developed or modified in turn, like the forms of flowers, for the due performance of the work of cross-fertilization. It may suffice at present to simply point out that the conformation of the legs of certain insects, as well as the form of the mouthparts, and even the hairiness of body or the reverse conditions, all bear witness to special adaptation in different insects for the fertilization of special flowers. Certain insects are known to confine their visits to special plants, some to one species of plant only, and probably, when this department of the subject is more fully and completely studied, the number of cases in which insect visitation is of a rigid or exclusive kind will be largely increased. The two chief methods of cross-fertilization, or in other words, of flower fertilization at large, are thus, one, by insects, or more rarely birds, snails, etc., two, by the wind, whilst three, pollen may be floated on water from one plant to another, as in the case of Alisneria spiralis. Botanists term plants fertilized by insects, entomophilus, and those fertilized by the wind, anemophilus. Some plants, for example common rhubarb, and some species of plantigo, exhibit an intermediate condition in that they may be fertilized in either way. The wind-fertilized plants, as an invariable rule, according to Darwin, possess small and inconspicuous flowers, whilst the insect-fertilized flowers, as might be expected, are conspicuous, or, if not brightly colored, are strong-smelling. Moreover, there are certain conspicuous differences between the pollen and its quantity, and between the form of the stigma, etc., in wind-fertilized and insect-fertilized flowers. The pollen of the wind-fertilized plants is produced in far greater quantity than that of the insect-dependent flowers. Then also the former flowers open before the leaves are in full growth, in order that the clouds of pollen may gain easy access to the pistils, whilst their stigmas are usually branched and bending, for example, alder, wheat, etc., so as the more readily to intercept and detain the pollen in its wind flights. Allusion has already been made to the showers of pollen emitted by coniferous trees, and it may be added here that bucketfuls of pollen from conifers and grasses are occasionally swept off the decks of vessels off North American coasts, whilst North American lakes may be covered over a considerable area of their surface by the yellow pollen of the pines. Most of our cereals are presumably wind-fertilized, and the importance of light breezes in the early summer may therefore be a matter of consideration in respect of the full ears of autumn. Hulbrank and Kuhnecke, in their practical suggestion, carried out in Belgium and Germany, of drawing a rope across the full-flowered ears so as to distribute pollen and cross-fertilize the plants, seem therefore to have imitated nature's method. The question of the wind fertilization of the cereals, it may be remarked, however, is at present an open one since some botanists elect to believe that the wind-distributed pollen is simply the excess or useless pollen remaining after fertilization has been accomplished, the actual agency in scattering abroad the fertilizing dust being said to be the sudden extension and elasticity of the stalks of the stamens. 
that cross-fertilization is the rule of nature is a fact amply demonstrated by the well-nigh endless contrivances in flower structure, form, appearance, and function through which the interchange of pollen is brought about. Let us briefly glance at the outlines of such a study. Allusion has already been made to cases in which a separation of stamens and pistil takes place as a normal condition of many plants. Such separation may proceed to the extent of placing stamens in one set of flowers and pistils in another set on the same plant, or it may be illustrated by the more complete isolation of these organs, so that in the latter case we find all the flowers on one plant to be staminate and all the pistillate flowers to be born on another plant. The lesser nettle, for instance, has its stamens and pistils in different flowers on the same plant, as also have the oak, melon, cucumber, maize, hop, hazel, carex, etc. The greater nettle, on the other hand, bears on one plant none but staminate flowers, and on another plant none but pistillate bearing flowers, whilst hemp, willow, the variegated laurel, aucuba japonica, palms, etc., also illustrate the complete separation of stamens and pistil. Other conditions more or less uniting these dispositions of the stamens and pistil may be found in flowers. In a daisy, which is a collection of flowers, we find the outer or white florets to possess pistils but no stamens, and the yellow and central florets to possess both stamens and pistil. We can readily discern that all such arrangements secure pollen of essentially foreign kind for fertilization. Self-fertilization is, in fact, impossible in such cases as those just described and some very curious facts are found in botanical archives concerning the difficulties experienced in obtaining seeds where one of the necessary elements, usually the pollen, for fertilization was absent. The variegated laurel presents a case in point. The first specimen of this species introduced from Japan was a pistillate or female plant and could produce ovules from its flowers, but no seeds inasmuch as no pollen from another and staminate plant was forthcoming. The plant was largely reproduced from slips alone until within comparatively recent years when staminate plants being imported, pollen was then forthcoming for the production of seed. The Egyptians have long been in the habit of bringing palm branches bearing stamens from the desert in order to fertilize the domesticated pistillate or fruit-bearing palms grown at home. This necessary process was frustrated in 1808 when the French occupied Egypt and when the stamen-laden branches could not, in consequence of foreign invasion, be procured. In the well-known Valisneria spiralis, a water plant of southern Europe, which, like the willow and palm, has stamens and pistils on separate plants, the pistillate flowers are borne to the surface at the proper period by relaxing of a spirally coiled stalk on which they are supported. The stamen-bearing flowers, on the contrary, are borne on short stalks, and becoming detached therefrom, float to the surface of the water. There they scatter their pollen, which reaches the pistillate flowers, and the latter being fertilized are drawn by their stalks once more beneath the water, where the seeds mature and the fruit in due course ripens. The present is perhaps a fitting stage of our inquiries to remark that the tendency towards cross-fertilization in nature is nowhere more strongly marked than in cases where a plant is utterly infertile with its own pollen, but perfectly fertile when impregnated with pollen from another plant of the same species, or in some notable instances from an entirely different species of plant. Species of passion flowers have been found sterile with their own pollen, although slight changes in their conditions such as being grafted on another stock, 
or a change of temperature rendered them self-fertile. More extraordinary still, however, is the knowledge of the fact that the pollen of some orchids actually acts like a poison if placed in what one would have deemed the most natural position for it, namely on their own stigmas. Such facts as these entirely alter the former conception of a species, as a group the members of which were fertile inter sea, but infertile with members even of nearly allied species, and such knowledge supplies a wholesome corrective to the theory that species are separate, independent, and distinct entities, both as to origin and after relations. If nature contrives by such means to effect cross-fertilization, there exist ample fields for the demonstration of a like result in other and very varied fashions. In a very large number of flowers, for instance, the stamens ripen and discharge their pollen before the pistil is ripe, or the ovules ready for fertilization. In other cases, but more rarely, the pistil ripens before the stamens. The former case is illustrated by most species of geraniums, pelargoniums, by harebells and other campanulaceae, by many umbelliferous plants, by carnations, sweet william, and allied plants, and by many plants of the daisy and dandelion type, compositi. The latter case of the earlier ripening of the pistil is illustrated by the rib grass, plantigo, of the roadsides, by the cuckoo pint, arum, and other plants. One or two familiar illustrations will suffice to show how clearly and effectually nature carries out her intention of securing cross-fertilization by different periods of ripening in stamens and pistils. The pink, or carnation, in its first condition exhibits the case of a plant possessing stamens alone. These organs ripen, discharge their pollen, which is carried by insects to flowers whose pistil may then be ripe, and then die away. After the stamens, and with them all chances of self-fertilization have disappeared, the pistil matures, and its style and stigma develop fully. It is then fertilized by foreign pollen, that is, by pollen from a pink, whose stamens are at that period in full development. So also is it with thyme, whose stamens ripen first, and with the Canterbury bells, harebells, and like flowers. In the campanulas, anthers and pistils are closely related before the flower opens, and when the anthers discharge their pollen, it is shed upon the style or stalk of the pistil, and only after the stamens have shriveled up and their pollen has been carried away by insect agency to other bell flowers, does the pistil develop fully, and its three conspicuous stigmas open out so as to receive pollen from another and, at that period, pollen-producing flower. In cases like the preceding, therefore, it is evident nature does not intend that the flower's own pollen should fertilize its ovules. The opposite case occurs in Plantago, where the elegant little pistils ripen first and where the stamens do not mature until fertilization of their flower has been accomplished by foreign pollen. In the cuckoo pint, arum, there is also witnessed the ripening of the pistil before the stamens. Everyone knows this plant with its sheathing leaf and the central stalk bearing the flowers. The anthers are placed above the stigmas, hence it would seem at first sight as if nature intended that their pollen should fall downwards and fertilize the plant's own ovules. But the pistils ripen long before the stamens. When the latter are mature, the pistil has been already fertilized. Hence the pollen, it is evident, must be intended for fertilizing other pistils of the species, unless, indeed, we can maintain that nature, like Homer, sometimes nods. The pollen in this case falls to the bottom of the sheathing leaf, where it might well seem to be lost entirely to the outer world. Small insects, however, in due course, arrive upon the scene. Entering the cavity of the leaf readily enough, 
on the principle of facilis densensis averni, they find the reverse process, revocare grandum, to be impossible. By an arrangement of stiff hairs pointing downwards, which they readily enough brush aside on entering, they are prevented from escaping out of the flower. Hemmed in by this natural chevaux de frise, as in an eel trap, we may find inside an arum a hundred or two small insects in Durant's vial. Here, however, they find nourishment in the honey secretion, and here they in due time work out nature's will, in that they become laden with the discharged pollen, so that when the opposing hairs shrivel and wither away, the insect crowd disperses itself and its units, undeterred by reminiscences of their imprisonment, entering other arums in which the stigmas have just ripened, duly cross-fertilize the latter. End of section 39. Chapter 14. The Fertilization of Flowers, Part 2.